0: It's a long way to Tipperary Everyone, And welcome to History of the Great War, Episode 19. Our first episode of 2015, and hence our first episode about 1915. It has been a long road up to this point for the participants in the war, so this episode we will take a step back from our chronicle of events to take a look at the situation of the five major participants in the war at this point. France, Britain, Germany, Russia, and Austria-Hungary. Their situations would directly cause them to adopt certain plans and objectives for 2015, which we will examine for each country. Many of the plans and ideas we will talk about today will foreshadow most of the episodes for this entire year. So let's get started. None of the nations that entered the war in 1914 thought that it would go into 1915. There were members of every nation's leadership group that thought the war would drag on for a while but the consensus in every country was that the war would be quick and decisive. In January 1915, they faced the beginning of another year of war that nobody had prepared for. Both sides had thrown everything into opening assaults that they thought would win the war, and it hadn't worked. For anybody. This makes the beginning of 1915 really interesting, because every country was off of their pre-war map, and they were trying to make decisions that would drastically change the fate of their nation over the next year. All sides were committed to renewing offensives as soon as the weather allowed it, and the real question became when and where. There were also factions in every country, uh, except for maybe Serbia, that argued for peace. They even went so far as to say that peace should be sought, even if it resulted in negative political consequences for their country. They believed that stopping the destruction of men and material was worth any negative consequences that may come about because of it. It was very difficult for any of these factions to gain any traction in their arguments if the end result was that the other side ended up gaining from the peace. To quote Catastrophe 1914, which I think sums up the situation pretty well, could any responsible Allied government have negotiated with Germany and Austria at such a peace that the Kaiser together with his generals and ministers, sought and continued to seek? Nations which have paid the huge moral, political, and financial price for entering a conflict are seldom interested in quitting it as long as they think they might win. The first nation we come to in our examination of what each country planned to do is France. They were in maybe the easiest place in terms of figuring what to do in 1915. The plans were almost dictated to them by how much of France was under German control. They were almost required by national pride, prestige, and economic necessity to push the Germans out of France. Of the 80 French departments not under German command, or near the front, most were agricultural. The 10 German-occupied departments contained most of French industry, especially in some key industries like steel, iron, and coal. These ten departments contained 14% of the nation's industrial workforce, two-thirds of the steel production, 80% of the iron mines, and 40% of sugar refineries and then substantial pieces of coal, wool, and chemical production. Those are obviously pretty important industries. France was lucky enough to have Britain on their side, the vast colonial swaths of both empires, and control of the oceans that made up for some of these deficiencies. But especially early in the war, shortages in areas like steel, iron, and coal were a problem. The need for French attacks was also necessitated by the morale of both soldiers and citizens. By contrast, the Germans would adopt a defensive stance in the West, and felt that they could give ground if necessary. After all, it was just a bit of France. Because of these reasons, the plans of France didn't change that much from their plans in 1914 launched large attacks against the Germans to push them back and into Germany. Joffre hoped that these would be in conjunction with Russian and British attacks. And if you've been listening since the beginning, uh, this sort of theory may sound familiar to our pre-war episodes, but Joffre hoped that the combined pressure of these attacks would require Germany to spread their troops thin, and hopefully too thin, and then... The French would break through, and then the Russians would break through into Prussia, and then the British would break through as well, and then the war would be over. It worked so great in 1914, of course it'll work this time, but not really. To achieve the goal of staying on the offensive, with the resources available, the plan was to split the French front into passive and active sectors. The active sectors would have strong points placed to cover the ground in front and on the flanks of the sector, While the passive sectors would be sparsely populated with only some lookouts and a lot of barbed wire. The passive sectors would also be partially held from the strong points in the active sectors as well as by artillery. By stripping the passive sectors of most of their troops, the French were able to create attacking forces to use in the active sectors. There was a reasonably uniform appearance to the front throughout the sectors, with a front line of trenches eventually backed by a second line, There was, of course, barbed wire everywhere, with two long belts of it about 20 yards apart and up to 10 yards deep. In January, Joffre sent a letter ordering his commanders to construct a second line of trenches to be much like the first, only two miles to the rear. Joffre also wanted his commanders to hold the front with as few troops as possible. The more troops that were in the front line, the more the troops were affected by artillery fire and other slow wastages of strength that the French could ill afford if they wanted to keep their offensive striking power intact. Joffre also advised against pushing outposts too close to the German lines, and this was for the same reasons. Both of these changes in French organization are indicative of Joffre knowing that to get the offensives that he wanted to launch, and give them enough men to actually succeed, he needed to husband his strength as much as possible. This is the complete opposite of the developing British treatment of the front lines, where they sought to dominate no-man's-land with a lot of men in the front-line trenches and constant trench raiding. So, how did they decide which sectors were active and which were passive? Most of that was dictated by geographical realities. Some areas of the front were just better for the French if they wished to achieve a breakthrough. The French needed a place where large numbers of infantry and artillery could be massed in preparation for large-scale attacks that would then break through into open country without any natural defensive barriers. One of the most passive sectors in the entire front was south of Verdun, where there wasn't any large-scale action between September 1914 and September 1918. This was mostly due to the hilly and mountainous topography of most of these areas. The Argonne Forest was another very passive area, due to the fact that it was, well, a forest. In the far north near the sea, there also weren't a lot of active areas due to flooding and the presence of the large number of lakes and rivers, which would slow any offensive down. The two primary active areas on the front, and the ones we will be discussing several times this year, were Artois in the north and Champagne in the south. These two areas were on both sides of the German salient that spanned the distance between the two and protruded towards Paris. There will be several battles in 1915 in these two specific areas, so I've put a map on the website in the show notes on this episode pointing out these two areas specifically. We will actually discuss the first of these battles next week. Joffre was still in command in France to begin 1915, and there were very few or at least far less than in Germany and Britain, thoughts about replacing him as commander of the French armies. He was perhaps benefited in this by his tendency to keep more information from the political leaders of France than other army leaders did. When asked to share information with his government by the war minister, Alexander Milan, he said, Any time the government, or yourself, no longer has complete confidence in what I am doing, I am completely ready to be relieved of the responsibilities you have confided in me." At this stage, Joffre was still seen by many as the hero of the Marne, so it was politically impossible for the French government to replace him, even if they had wanted to. Joffre, on the other hand, loved to replace generals, as we have discussed before. By November 1916, only two of the original 93 generals from August 1914 would still have their commands. While this number sounds pretty crazy, I would say that not all of these removals were bad, or not even most of them were bad, and they weren't all just on a whim. There were many generals who were experiencing their first wartime commands in decades or ever, and they just weren't prepared for the modern battlefield. In late 1914, to simplify the command structure, Joffre added two new positions, a command of the northern half of the front, which he gave to General Foch, and a commander of the southern half of the front, which he gave to General Dubail. This allowed for a more organized management of these areas, without as much reliance on Joffre and his staff for all decisions. As I mentioned earlier, even with all of the casualties suffered by France and the current supply shortages, Joffre planned to go on the offensive. According to Keegan, Joffre had one thought, to drive the invader from the national territory. He was still preferring his generals to keep up small attacks in the active sectors, to maintain an aggressive attitude. In a letter to his generals, he told them he wanted to maintain these attacks to, and I'm quoting here, "...maintain the spirit of the offensive among the troops, and not let them lapse into action under the pretense that the enemy will not attack." These attacks weren't a complete failure and in several instances they allowed the French to gain small pieces of tactical advantage in some areas of the front. However, the gains did not even come close to outweighing the cost. In late 1914, Joffre paused large offensives to stockpile artillery and ammunition, and he would use these in a few smaller offensives in November and early December. After these attacks, even in his desire to attack until there was a breakthrough, he eventually came around to the idea that maybe the French were not set up to accomplish such a breakthrough in the current environment. They didn't have enough artillery or men. In the awesome book, Pyrrhic Victory, French Strategy and Operations in the Great War, by Robert Dowdy, Joffre is quoted as saying, Before undertaking new operations, and after an uninterrupted battle of three months, it was necessary to proceed with the constitution of new reserves, the rebuilding of the numbers of our personnel, and the provision of munitions. It was equally necessary to develop the special equipment demanded by operations in siege warfare that we, from the first, were obliged to conduct before the mobile war began again. The French plans for 1915 would be finalized by the French operations staff in Chantilly near Paris during meetings late in 1914. The main driver for the choice of areas to attack was the disrupting of the German rail network that was behind the front. There were two critical railway systems needed by the German troops that were holding the front between Verdun and Flanders, and if either of these could be reached by the French, the Germans would be forced to retreat. The French hoped that if they could get this retreat to happen, their troops would gain momentum and keep the front from settling down again. To achieve this goal, the French would launch the aforementioned attacks in the Artois and Champagne regions. The Artois attacks had the objective of the railways on the Dois Plain behind Vimy Ridge, and the Champagne attacks sought a similar rail line behind the lines. The idea of attacking somewhere other than the Western Front was discussed in France, just like it would be to a greater extent in Britain, but it didn't have the same widespread support in France. General Franchette d'Espray led the group of Frenchmen who believed that attacking somewhere else was a good idea, and his proposal was to send eight divisions to the Greek port of Salonika, and on to Serbia, to help their fight against Austria-Hungary. He proposed this idea to the political leadership, and they thought it was an interesting proposition, but Joffre was completely against it. He was convinced that the war would be won or lost on the Western Front, and was concerned that if the troops were sent to Salonika, it would reduce his offensive capability in France. He also had other, more tangible concerns about the operation. He believed that eight divisions weren't enough to have the impact necessary to justify sending any, and it would be difficult to keep them supplied. This was a very real problem, something that the British and French would learn late in 1915. For now, Joffre would end up winning the argument, and no French troops were sent to Salonika. For now. Britain was France's ally across the Channel. But their situation was very different than that of the French. Their homeland was virtually invulnerable to invasion, and they didn't have any territory under German control. In early 1915, troops began to arrive from around the British Empire. These were a mix of colonial divisions made up of natives of that particular colony and the last remnants of the old professional army. These remnants were often long-term garrisons, and other forces that were slowly being replaced by British territorial units. The territorials were not originally designed for use outside the Home Isles, but they very quickly came to be used as garrisons in the colonies first, and then eventually on the battlefields of Europe. By the time all the troops from around the empire arrived, the British would have around 300,000 troops in Europe. The questions began to arise about what to do with these troops, and the new recruits that were currently starting their training in England. One thing that would have to be taken into account was that the British had agreed to take over some of the Western Front from the French. The British occupied only a small piece of the front around Ypres, and the plan was for that piece to expand to the north and to the south to free up French soldiers for other operations. There were also questions about what to do with the blockade of Germany. Some members of the government wanted a tighter blockade that would risk losing ships, while other members wanted to abandon it entirely due to the negative effect it was having diplomatically on countries around the globe. The question would remain for some time, but in the end the Germans would solve it for the British, when the German U-boats became a far larger problem for neutral countries around the globe than any British blockade could be. On the topic of what should be done with the new British troops, Sir John French, the commander of the British forces in France, felt very strongly that every available man should be sent to his forces, He was optimistic about the chances of the British in attacking the Germans on the Western Front, and much like Joffre, believed that it was only on the Western Front that the war could be won. He did not believe that the horrors of the late 1914 battles, like at Ypres, would continue into the new year. He attributed the late 1914 battles to the lack of material and the exhaustion of the men, and with proper rest and supplies the British would be able to break through. French, however, did not have as much influence on the government as Joffre did, and in fact, Kitchener was not nearly as optimistic about the chances of a British breakthrough in the West. In January, a new planning committee was created in London, called the War Council, and in January, French went to London to meet with the group. Most of the discussion of this council revolved around the hunt for somewhere, anywhere, other than the Western Front to send troops. There were several operations considered by the group. One option was an offensive along the coast to recapture the Belgian channel ports. This had the support of Churchill and the Navy. Capturing these ports would prevent Germany from using them as staging areas for naval operations, and it might induce Holland to join the war on the side of the Entente. The Navy was also stewing over a plan to attack the German Baltic coast, and hoped that an attack in Belgium would draw German troops and ships away from the Baltic. The Navy had already started building motor barges, to be used in the plan in the Baltic. They also planned to use Russian troops in the operation, but of course nobody had told the Russians anything about it. The plan was eventually shot down as being too risky. Kitchener was categorically opposed to it. Kitchener lobbied for keeping the newly created divisions on the home isles until the French and Germans had exhausted each other, he talked about this idea openly, to the consternation, I am sure, of any Frenchman who heard about it. He told Sir John French, The German armies in France may be looked upon as a fortress that cannot be carried by an assault. His goal was to hold the British line with a minimal number of resources, so that as much as possible could be held at home or sent on other operations. One of the options brought up by the Council was the landing of troops in Salonika just like d'Espray had suggested to the French leaders. Kitchener and Lloyd George liked this idea to some extent. David Lloyd George was in late 1914 the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and was strongly in favor of any operation that would prevent the army from taking heavy casualties that was all but guaranteed in any operations on the Western Front. He believed that in using some imagination and the power of the Royal Navy, the British could strike against Germany in a way that would end the war quickly and at a lower cost than operations in the West. Asquith, the British Prime Minister, also approved of the Salonika Expedition. He believed that attacking Austria-Hungary was the proper course of action, being quoted as saying, "...there seems to be some solid reason for thinking that Austria would like to make peace on her own account." There was also the fact that Italy was leaning strongly towards joining the Entente in early 1915, and having British and French troops in the area might help sway them closer to alliance with Britain, France, and Russia. The challenges we already discussed were the downfall of the Salonika operation, the difficulty to supply the troops, and the distance between Salonika and Serbia being the primary reasons. We will revisit the Salonika problems in greater detail later this year, when British and French troops end up landing in the Greek port. There was one final idea about where the British could attack in 1915, the Dardanelles. The Dardanelles is the strait from the Aegean Sea leading into the Sea of Marmara, that then leads to the city of many names, Constantinople, Istanbul, or in millennia past, Byzantium the capital of modern-day Turkey, and in 1914 it was the capital of the Ottoman Empire. The War Council discussed the possibilities of the Dardanelles operation, and decided on a strictly naval attack on the area. The goal was for a naval force to punch their way through the strait and into the Sea of Marmara. From there they could bombard Constantinople, maybe taking the Ottomans out of the war completely. This might in turn open the Black Sea ports of Russia, a warm-water port that would allow for year-round shipments to Russia, something that the cold-weather port of Archangel did not allow. The operation would also secure British interests in the Middle East and the Suez Canal, both very important to the British war effort. To find out the feasibility of these operations, Churchill sent a telegram to the commander of the British fleet in the area, asking if taking the Dardanelles was a problem, to which the commander replied by extended operations with the large number of ships it would be possible it is important to note that at this moment the war council saw the dardanelles campaign as a 100% naval there were no planned ground operations it's only important because later of course the campaign will be known for its ground operations The Dardanelles campaign, morphing into attempt to take Gallipoli by land, would become one of the most storied British military campaigns, maybe ever, and it all will happen in 1915. I will talk more than you may ever want to hear about Gallipoli this year, so I should probably just stop talking about it now. For now, we will turn to Germany. And in his book, The Great War, A Combat History of the First World War, Peter Hart says, For the Germans, 1915 was a year of the war that should not have been. Their entire strategy was based on a quick war. The Schlieffen Plan had been all about quickly knocking the French out of the war, so that focus could be shifted east. But it didn't work. The Germans found themselves in a precarious strategic position in 1915, with enemies on all sides, and only one ally, Austria-Hungary, who wasn't exactly carrying their weight. The German war leader, Falkenhayn, was to the point where he was questioning whether or not Germany could beat all the forces arrayed against them. At one point, he proposed a radical plan to seek a separate truce with Russia. He thought that if Germany offered the Russians peace terms that involved some monetary reparations to Germany but no territorial losses, they might accept. This would allow Germany to focus on France and Britain. With Germany focusing all of their strength in the West, Falkenhayn hoped that France would soon collapse. When he proposed this separate peace to Bethmann-Holweg, he was shot down immediately. Bethmann-Holweg saw the Russians as the primary enemy of the German state, and he rejected any proposal that sought to end the war with Russia undefeated. He also pointed out an agreement made between Russia and her allies in 1914 that strictly forbid any of them from seeking a separate peace. Even with this denial, Falkenhayn did not believe the war to be completely unwinnable or that it couldn't be won quickly. But he did begin to take a more realistic view on the situation. Germany, France, and Austria-Hungary continued to raise troops, and more were being called up every month. But the absolute limit of manpower was within sight of all three nations. All nations would soon start lowering the bar for entry to military service and also conscript men from older cohorts of the population. Even with these measures, all three would be at a point soon where they would be restricted to the groups of men entering military service age every year for replacements. Russia, with its vast manpower pool, and Britain, with its lesser involvement early in the war, were not yet feeling this pinch as bad as the other three. There was also disagreement in the German high command about exactly where Germany should spend its strength in 1915. This disagreement would go on to cause problems for the Germans at the highest level, as the players used their influence in the government and military to try and sway enough opinion to their side. One of the reasons for these problems was that Falkenhayn wasn't the supreme commander. That was technically the Kaiser. But he also didn't technically report to the Kaiser, since between them was the military cabinet. This was a group that had no real power, but it had a lot of influence on all the other pieces of the German government. During the winter of 1914-1915, to the Kaiser complained heavily that he was being excluded from strategic decision-making and that the general staff told him nothing. This meant he had no role in leading the armies that he was technically the commander of. If there was one thing that Falkenhayn, Ludendorff, and Hindenburg could agree on, it was that the Kaiser not having any real power in military matters was exactly how it should be. After being shot down by Bethman Holwick on his idea to get a separate peace with Russia, Falkenhayn created a plan for 1915 that hinged on offensives in the west and defense in the east, with the longer-term goal of getting some sort of separate peace with Russia. He wanted to focus all of his power on the French, since he considered them the primary enemy. While Falkenhayn wanted to put his plan into place, He didn't have the power necessary to get everyone to go along with it. There was a group of dissenters, coalescing around Hindenburg and Ludendorff, who believed all German effort should go into defeating Russia in 1915. The successes in the East during 1914 had shot the popularity of Hindenburg through the roof, and he and Ludendorff began working against Falkenhayn through the military council. Ludendorff influenced Hindenburg to speak out openly against Falkenhayn and his ability to command. Hindenburg also used all of his political connections and influence at court to have them do the same. Falkenhayn wasn't helping himself with his belief that the war would be longer and costlier than originally planned. Hindenburg and Ludendorff were pitching a strategy that they said would result in a quick, short, easy war. It was pretty easy, given those two options, to see why support would lean toward the pair. Falkenhayn did use his influence to work against the pair, but to less success. Falkenhayn also appealed to the Kaiser. The fact that this was happening in the Prussian army was a bit shocking. It went against all their traditions and standards. One of the primary reasons that Falkenhayn stayed in command throughout all of these disagreements is that the Kaiser 100% supported him. Without this support, it is likely that Falkenhayn would not have been the commander of the German armies as long as he was. When the confrontation came to a head, Falkenhayn decided not to threaten to resign if his plans were changed, and instead worked with Hindenburg and Ludendorff to reach an agreement that would work for both parties. By this point, Hindenburg had determined that he didn't yet have the influence to get Falkenhayn replaced, so he went along with the agreement. Part of the agreement was that four new army corps, or more than a 100,000 men, were to be transferred to the east. A portion of these went south to help Austria-Hungary in their coming offensives, and Falkenhayn named General Alexander von Linsingen to command them. Linsingen was a protege of Falkenhayn's, and Falkenhayn knew that he could trust him to follow his orders. As part of this transfer, in what some people listening might call a cheeky move, Falkenhayn named Ludendorff as Linsingen's chief of staff. He claimed that Linsingen would need Ludendorff's genius in the south, But really he just wanted to try to separate him from Hindenburg. Before Ludendorff left, Hindenburg wrote a passionate note to the Kaiser, protesting the change. In one part of the letter he would say, about Ludendorff, he has become to me a true helper and friend, irreplaceable by any other, one on whom I bestow my fullest confidence. Your Majesty knows from the history of war how important such a happy relationship is for the conduct of affairs and for the well-being of the troops. And in another part of the letter, he would state, I venture most respectfully to beg that my war comrade may graciously be restored to me as soon as the operation in the south is underway. Ludendorff would later say, I can only love and hate, and I hate General Falkenhayn. It is impossible for me to work together with him. Later, when Falkenhayn would meet with Hindenburg and Ludendorff at Posen, Hindenburg would say to Falkenhayn's face that he didn't have the confidence of the men under his command, and he should resign. Upon hearing of this, the Kaiser threatened to have both Hindenburg and Ludendorff court-martialed. The disagreements between these three men aren't even close to over, and they will be reoccurring all the way through 1916. In his book, A World Undone, The Story of the Great War, J.G. Meyer would write, No mechanism existed by which Germany's competing strategists could discuss their differences in any systematic way, and a crisis was inevitable. But instead of experiencing a leadership crisis, the high command went through a series of such crises that lasted a year and a half. The fact that all of these men had their own views and thoughts on where Germany should spend its strength in the second year of the war is indicative of one thing. Germany didn't have a lot of good options. They were constantly having to balance the risks and dangers on all of the fronts with the limited resources that they possessed. And they were not helped at all by the fact that Austria-Hungary began the year in crisis mode and it only got worse from there, especially when Italy entered the war. With the move of the four Corps of the German army to the east, it became in that region, against Russia, that victory would have to be achieved, if it was even possible for the Germans in 1915. The target for the German efforts, the Russians, were also having some difficulties deciding what to do in 1915. With the Ottoman entry into the war, they were facing three enemies, with Germany, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottomans in the Caucasus. Their grand objective was to hurt Germany as much as possible, but there was disagreement on how best to make this happen. Remember back a few episodes, we talked about how the Russian front was divided into two pieces, the Northwest and the Southwest front. These two front commanders were constantly fighting for resources, and it was only made worse when the front was split into three pieces early in 1915. It didn't help that the Russian general staff was also very divided on what should be done, There were three main options for the Russians, and they all had their own supporters. The first thought was to attack into East Prussia again. This had the same benefit that it did in 1914. It was a short walk to the heart of Prussia. The second option was to go straight through Poland and into the heart of Germany. This was the quickest way to get into Germany proper, but would present two flanks for the Germans and Austrians to attack, making it also very risky. Finally, there was the option of attacking over the Carpathian Mountains and into Hungary. The Russians had seen their only success in the south, against the armies of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. They had even captured all of Galatia. However, standing in front of them was the Carpathian Mountains. Any offensive actions over the mountains was going to be difficult. Without firm leadership from Grand Duke Nicholas, who also couldn't count on much support or guidance from the Tsar, The Russians chose the one thing that made success in any area doubtful. They chose to attack in all three areas. The Russians had the men for this. They still had the largest army in Europe. However, it was the logistical and supply problems that would be the downfall of such a massive offensive. Just like everybody else, the Russians were having severe supply shortages of artillery ammunition. However, the Russians were also suffering severe shortages of simply supplies like rifles and food. There were situations where units were sent to the front with less than two-fifths of the men having rifles. Hindsight is indeed 20 but it seems likely that if Grand Duke Nicholas and the Russians chose to apply all of their strength to either of the three objectives presented to them, they would have had far more success. The Austro-Hungarian Empire entered 1915 in crisis mode. Serbia remained unbeaten in the south, Russia had taken over Galicia and was posed to attack through the Carpathians and into the Hungarian heartland, and there was a very good chance that Italy would soon be entering the war against them. They were also having trouble making their armies whole again after they had suffered so many casualties in 1914. Austria-Hungary had a third of Russia's population, but was fighting not just Russia, but Serbia and soon Italy as well. There were few ways in which the first five months of the war could have went worse for the Austrians. Entering the new year, the first priority was always to keep the Russians on the other side of the Carpathians. Conrad, the Austrian commander, in what was becoming his signature style, chose to attack against the Russians instead of staying on the defensive. He hoped to push the Russians away from the Carpathians, and maybe out of Galatia altogether. With the side goal of relieving the siege of Shemishal, where over a 100,000 troops were trapped by the Russians. This was a very bold plan, and it would prove to be too bold. When we talk about it in a few weeks, we will talk about some of the worst fighting conditions I have ever heard of, and stuff that would rival any battle in the war. Austria's only ally, Germany, didn't think that the Austrians were capable of doing anything by themselves, and as we discussed earlier, began sending troops to help the Austrians almost as soon as the year began. It would be the German handicap in both world wars, be it Austria-Hungary in the first world war or Italy in the second. The Germans would have to begin propping up their allies almost immediately after the war began. So what will happen with all of these plans? Will France be successful in their offensives against the Germans? Will Britain force the Dardanelles with their navy while also beating back the Germans in Belgium? Will the Germans and Hindenburg and Ludendorff deal Russia a knockout blow? Will the Russian steamroller finally activate its true power and roll over all of Europe? Will Austria-Hungary even survive? I will answer all of these questions and many, many more over the coming weeks. My one final quote for this episode comes from The Great War and the Making of the Modern World by Jeremy Black and I think it does a good job of summarizing many of the events in 1914. It's not generally appreciated by the Allies, nor among all German generals, that stalemate and trench warfare reflected the nature of modern industrial war once both sides had committed large number of troops, and lacked the ability to accomplish a breakthrough. Everybody had learned many lessons from the fighting in 1914, but they still had a lot to learn about the war that they were fighting. Speaking of lessons, wow, have I learned a lot about podcasting in the last few months. For those who wish to learn a bit more about what I've learned about podcasting over the first 18 episodes of this series, I have posted a blog post at historyofthegreatwar.com detailing some of it, Uh, a small warning that it's very inside baseball in some ways when it comes to creating a podcast. I would like to thank everyone who listens to the podcast, and especially everyone who has liked the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash historyofthegreatwar, everybody who follows the podcast on Twitter at twitter.com slash historygreatwar, and everyone who has left a review on iTunes. Interacting with listeners is one of the great joys of making the show, and you guys are awesome. this is carl on his motorcycle let's ride till we run out of gas and this is carl off his motorcycle Balsa wood is very different than teak people confuse the two on his motorcycle hey check out that view of his motorcycle let's do puzzles in the break room On. Look at all that open road! Off. Look how long my fingernails are getting. You're better on your bike. Progressive helps keep you on it. Get a quote in as little as three minutes at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.